This is a Soul Fire production. Are you ready to enhance your sexual, erotic, and relational intelligence? Welcome to Higher Sex, where we take sex education to the next level. Come here to get curious about sex and cultivate acceptance, deep love, and intimacy. No topic is too hot to handle. As a psychotherapist and sexologist, Kelly playfully leads listeners through worlds of informative and actionable sex education, personal stories from her inspirational guests, and leading edge research from trusted experts. Higher sex is scandalous and explorative, leaving you wanting more. Let's keep this conversation going. Subscribe today so you don't miss out on these hot new episodes each week. Ashley, I'm so excited to meet with you and thank you so much for meeting with me. I think the world of you and I am often supported by you and inspired by you. And I know you're a wealth of information. So thank you for agreeing to meet with me on this podcast. Well, it's an honor to actually be on your podcast because I feel equally the same about you. So Ashley, you are a master's level registered social worker and psychotherapist and own a private therapy practice. You specialize in sexual health and sexual empowerment and relationships, sexuality in general, and perinatal mental health, as well as birth trauma, which is such a unique specialization. And am I missing anything on that list? Oh, no, you got it all. (laughs) I know you're a general practitioner as well, but then you specialize, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you're often a go-to um, for people that I often refer to you um, when it's out of scope for me. But I'm so curious because people always ask me as a sex therapist or, um, or as a sex positive therapist, how did I get into the field? So I'm so curious to know as to how did you gravitate into the world of sexuality? Oh, yeah. It's so funny when like this question gets asked to me because I think as therapists, sometimes we hold space and hear other people's stories so often that we never, we, not never, we don't often get the chance to talk about our own stories. And I was just relaying this to somebody the other day that sometimes I get verbal diarrhea because <laughs> it's like, wow, you're asking me about myself. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm put on the spot here. Yeah. This particular niche, this intersection of sexuality and perinatal mental health kind of fell into my lap, I think. Sexuality was always a part of my interest since I'm going to date as far back to grade 11. I kind of knew that my goal was to be a sex therapist at that point. So you knew young, like a pre-university. Oh yeah. And I remember doing, it wasn't home ec, it was like a family studies high school class. And I remember doing all my projects on something rooted in sexuality within relationships. And I think my teacher was a little bit weirded out by it. <laughs> what okay. you sexual papers? <laughs> and then even in the, in the yearbook, I think I might've put when it says like future career goal, I think I put sex therapist. Which I, I would also like to add was not well known. Like, I think it's yeah. just becoming more well known even in the past five years. Cause yeah. Right. So I kind of knew from that, that point that that's what I wanted to do. And so I applied to um, the university of Waterloo at the St. Jerome's program for sexuality, marriage, and the family. And when I started that program, it was only four years. And then when I got to the fourth year, they decided to do a pilot honors program to see how it would go. 
So it's kind of like, well, do I stick around for the fifth year or do I get on with the show here? So I stuck around for the fifth year, which was completely test. It was like nobody knew what they were really doing or what the fifth year was supposed to look like, but it was more of an internship. So that was really fun. That is cool that you were a pilot for that too. So you got to inform the program going forward. Yeah. So I think I, where did I do my placement? Guelph Women in Crisis, I believe. I did my placement as a pub ed teacher and I did a thesis paper on the correlation between risk seeking behavior, adrenaline seeking behaviors like skydiving, mountain climbing, things like that and infidelity. So chances of being um, unfaithful to your partner, which looking back, I was like, well, I could have probably tried a little bit harder because that feels like it's an obvious outcome. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was that. And then um, eventually I landed in Wilfrid Laurier and I kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do at that point um, as a social work student because there wasn't much conversation around sexuality within that school itself. I essentially started my career very much as a generalist. I didn't use any of the information that I learned in my undergrad at all. But you Um, entered that master's program with a wealth of information on human sexuality compared to anyone else who didn't have that undergrad specialization, right? Because that was um, a unique program. I remember being very jealous of it. Yeah, (laughs) it was awesome. And the teachers were so cool. It was those are the the professors that you never you never forget they inspire yeah. you in so many unique ways and the classes like death and dying and the history of homosexuality like some of those classes were really really rad so yeah and so i didn't use anything that i i feel like i didn't use anything that i learned in my undergrad i just didn't have the space for it so when i started my career um working at a not for profit I kind of was just given anything and everything. And it was just an assembly line of different clients from uh, domestic violence to couples to male survivors of sexual assault, everything. Like it just got thrown everything, which looking back was probably fantastic. Yeah, because it gets, it allows you to learn what you and discern what you're really passionate about and maybe where you don't want to focus too, right? Yeah, which I realized very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I love working with couples. I love working within the context of relationships, whether that's couples or, or triads or poly functioning relationships. Yeah. Uh, and then I became a mom and struggled with my own postpartum anxiety and rage and didn't know who to turn to or what was even happening and realized that, oh, if I want to go to therapy, I literally have to go to my colleagues because I, at that point I lived in the middle of nowhere and I would have to see probably somebody that I sat at a board meeting with with, and I was not comfortable with that. Sure. Especially because it sounds like this is a time in your life where you really caught you by surprise. Like you were not prepared for this. No, I was really burnt out at the not-for-profit. So I thought that the time off on a mat leave was going to be revitalizing. Yeah. I just said, I'm like, oh, I'm going to build a lavender garden and I'm going to do all this like magical stuff on my spare time that did not happen at all. You've been into herbs forever too. So this isn't a recent passion either. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I was like, this is going to be fantastic. No, did not end up that way. So on my, on my mat leave, I decided to get the training in the maternal mental health and the the perinatal mental health. And I kind of did it for two reasons. One, to kind of add to my experience and my training, but also because I 
knew that I needed to help myself mm. because I didn't trust anybody in my community to help me. Because you've been through uh, the training and know it wasn't included in a lot of the trainings that were standard for general practitioners anyways, right? No, not at all. And that's why it's important when people look for therapists, if they are struggling with something related to the perinatal period, which is the before, during, and after pregnancy, it's important that you're just not looking for a generalist. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can go on psychology today and people are going to have 400 things listed as their specialties. Um, and it might say pregnancy, parenting within those categories. And you think, fantastic, this is the person I'm going to hire. And you don't do the digging to find out that they, if they have this particular training, and there's really only one training in, right. in all of North America for this. Right. Yeah. So if somebody says list that, I would definitely question to say, you know, what training have you had in perinatal mental health? Um, because PSI is the only recognized training, Perinatal Support International. So I guess it's international, not just in North America. But yeah, so I dove kind of into the perinatal mental health world and there wasn't space for me to utilize that at the not-for-profit when I ended up going back. So I decided for a number, number of reasons to just, you know, hit the ground running with an online practice. Because yeah, private therapy practice. I could do it online. I could create the business without having to rent space. Right. Um, but all the overhead. Fantastic. Like what a, what a great idea to transition out of your nine to fives into an online practice. Especially during COVID right now, online is the place to be, but also with the population that you serve, it makes it very convenient mm -hmm. to bundle up a baby and hustle out to your office and all that stuff too. Like you're just a click away. Yeah. No parking, no paying for parking, no worrying about transportation and thinking, okay, I got to pack a bottle or find a babysitter. Right. So I was very fortunate that the not-for-profit wanted to do online therapy. So I had the training for online therapy, which at the time was super new. So they had specific training that was needed. So I used that to my advantage. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and then, so once I kind of, when I moved here and and moved back here and created the, um, like that was my, that was my business. And I put all my energy and effort into it. I started to realize that something was missing and that I didn't want to just be a perinatal mental health therapist, right. that I wanted to find a way to incorporate my deep rooted passions in the field revolving around sex and sexuality and intimacy and erotic eroticism mm -hmm. and all the things that I was hearing about in the perinatal context, but was finding that clients were kind of hesitant to talk about maybe because I wasn't marketing myself in a way that seemed like that was an appropriate conversation to be having. Right. Like, oh, I can come and talk to you about my intrusive thoughts and my rage, but I don't know based on what I've read on your bio and on your website, if you're the person that I want to talk to about the fact that I have no libido. Right. And I haven't had sex potentially with my partner or partners in six to 12 months or beyond. Right. And it's like, this is starting to become a challenge for us. And what do we do? Exactly. So I kind of said I had, you know, you and I had a bunch of conversations and I had a lot of imposter syndrome around this idea of how to incorporate it. And it kind of just clicked one day where I was kind of like, what got the baby in 
yeah. for the most part. For the most part. <laughs> for the most part, yeah. There's a lot of situations where that's not what got the baby in. It needs to be looked at as a natural and normal part of human interaction and relationship building and even moving away from this idea that the person that birthed the babies is the one that's solely responsible for their mental health and should be coming to therapy individually. Figure their own stuff out, right. Yeah, and moving more to the context of this is a system. A system, I love that, yep. So how is your partner's, what's your partner's role? How are they supporting you? Let's bring them in. Let's start having conversations with them. If they need some psycho-ed on what's happening for you in the postpartum or perinatal world, then let's have that conversation. Let's bring them in to better understand how is sexuality impacting them? What are they missing? Is this about actual intercourse or is it about the fact that you're touched out as the primary parent and their primary love language is physical touch and they're not getting anything from you? Right. And they're feeling at a loss and everything that worked before is no longer working, right? So it's like, what do we do from here? And resentment builds Mm -hmm. and people lose their identities. And there's this constant internal dialogue of it'll never be the same again. So it's really important to, to look at this as a system and incorporate conversations around, you know, what is your definition of sex? So if your partner just went through a traumatic birth, First of all, we have to think about that. We have to think about where is their nervous system at? You know, The Body Keeps Score is a fantastic book that doesn't necessarily talk about birth trauma, but can teach you about how our bodies hold trauma and birth trauma in the context of, you know, not being listened to by the care provider, not having the birth outcome that you had kind of planned and having interventions that you had not consented to, that's all going to store in your body as trauma. And now your partner is wanting to be sexual with you and your body cannot even comprehend that at the moment. Like pleasure, right? Pleasure at this point is like... Not on, not on the table. No. And it looks like pooping in alone away from your family. And right. Like with the door closed and nobody crawling on you. So this is, this is the important piece. What how can you begin to like relearn what sex means, what intimacy means? Maybe there are no touch zones right now. It doesn't mean that they're always going to be that way. This is why I really wish that sexological body workers were more incorporated into circles of care for postpartum people to be able to restore that mind-body connection back to your womb, back to your vulva back to all of the areas that were traumatized through birth. Right. Because it is so intimate, right? And you're touching on so many important points that people don't even think about or talk about for that matter. And so after the experience, it just feels like such a mountain to climb. And again, feeling at a loss and feeling so detached from everything that you knew, um, even from your own body, your own experience. And then it can start to build space and distance in the relationship and then even start to impact the foundation of your family. Um, And so, yeah. It's the other thing I was thinking about too that I, f- I usually forget to mention. And just you just clicked in my head. Oh, I'm glad I clicked you. Yeah, you clicked me. <laughs> um, this idea too that you know the birthing person might be 
you have even like heightened desire and their partner might've just watched a birth that was very traumatizing to watch. And we don't necessarily prepare our partners for all the possibilities during birth. Of what they could see and experience. Mm-hmm. The birth and- is very like educated from those right, parts. but even the birth partner too feel could feel helpless as well, right? Because there's nothing that they can really do. Obviously, be there and offer emotional support and encouragement that way. But you know, seeing your partner go through so much pain and potentially trauma. Yeah, and so now we have the birthing person that's saying, "I want to have sex." Like I, I don't understand why you're pulling away from me. Now I feel like you don't think I'm attractive anymore. Rejected. Or, yeah. Exactly. And, and the partner's not able to articulate why they're reluctant. Um, maybe they can say something along the lines of like, that was really hard for me to watch, but that connection might not be there. And again, everything that you maybe re- relied on before to spark that intimacy or desire or arousal is just not as close or readily available to you. No. So, you know, I really like that you talked about like redefining what sex means to you now or intimacy or physical affection and closeness. And instead of just going from zero to a hundred or trying to recreate what, what was, how can you just lay in bed and hold each other? Can you find other ways to start to build that bridge and recreate or explore a new, a new type of sex, a new type of sexuality and intimacy together um, instead of being so fearful or afraid or avoidant of it as well? right? Because avoidance, um, if that goes, of course that can happen for periods of time and sex ebbs and flows and all of that is normal. But if avoidance goes on for too long, then that could erode or cause other problems down the road or even just not dealing with the trauma. So how do you support clients? I, I mean, I know you're, you're sharing it already, but in terms of, cause again, it's pre, during and post as well. Mm-hmm. And I know there's so many layers and nuances that go into that, like the fertility treatments and how it becomes more, um, you know, people experiencing fertility treatments and how it becomes more scripted and planned and premeditated and all that types of sex. And then also maybe people who experience miscarriage and grief and loss. And then, you know, how do they recreate um, trying to procreate again or even going through that experience and trying to recreate their intimacy, going through all of that type of trauma and loss as well. Um, and then during pregnancy as well, when your body's changing, hormone changing, erogenous zones are changing, positions could then feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And then posts as well. Like there's just so much and no relationship is the same. So, you know, I think that your nation specialization is so powerful and important. Um, with all of that, like what are some key things that you just wish people knew or were aware of or you want to normalize, I guess? I think that we just live in a society that has everything's at our fingertips 24-7. We have immediate information. We have lost the ability to sit and wait and and essentially have patience. So I think that we can catastrophize things very quickly if they aren't the way that they used to be. Right. Like this is broken. We're never going to get it back. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? And just quickly jump to that place. So this idea of just because it's this way right now, doesn't mean it's always going to be this way Mm -hmm. and how to get out of that you know, pattern of it being always this way is just a very conscious, mindful mindset. Like if you want it to change, it's going to change. 
if you work on it, but also working on it might just mean giving it space to just be and run its course for right now. Right. So that's number one, just like having patience with yourself and with your partner, because your partner can feel that even if you don't say anything to them directly, they can, they know that you're not being patient. They know that there's something else that's going on for you. This internalized, you know, inability to feel value or worth because things aren't how they used to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. Yeah. And you know, you're also touching on something that I have to bring up with people too, is that even if nothing changes, like if in terms of the avoidance piece, if you can at least just talk about it, yeah. just so you're like, you know, doing a pulse check, like this is on my mind. It's just, you know, we need to let things breathe or like you said, just be for now. Um, versus just leaving it as an elephant in the room and yeah. thinking that just by talking about it means you have to come up with a plan and act on it as well. Yeah. And having those communicate communication skills to talk about it, which the majority of people don't. Right. Hence the relationship therapy comes in. Yeah. Right? The majority of people, first of all, don't know how to deliver a message in a way that feels soft and approachable. And because of that, the other the the receiver of the information feels attacked and needs to defend themselves. It becomes defensive. So it's just this cycle, right? Right. Which and is it's a why- very vulnerable, emotionally charged topic. Yeah. Yes. And it can't just be on a whim while you're on the way out the door for work or right before bed and you're exhausted. Like those, that's poor timing for those kind of conversations. What is the good timing? Like, what do you feel like? When do you feel like the best time? I know it's probably, why don't you just give us the the blueprint here? Or (laughs) this is the number one time to talk about it when I know it's probably unique to every different relationship. But what are just some key things to keep in mind, I guess, when you're trying to navigate these types of dialogue? I mean, ideally, if people are already doing like a state of the union type meeting with each other on a weekly basis. Like love those weekly check-ins. Yeah. Sitting down on a Sunday, you know, maybe you've ordered, maybe your, your tradition on Sunday is like we order Thai food and we have a, a glass of wine and we kind of just chit chat about and check in and maybe have more structure. Some couples need more structure than others. And if you're already incorporating those kinds of conversations, then when you bring to the table something like this, it doesn't feel so out of the blue. But if you're not doing that, then kind of being very mindful to give your partner lots of warning that that's the kind of conversation you want to have in a non-threatening way. Saying something like, hey, hon, you know, uh, I've been thinking a lot and um, maybe tonight after work, we can have, you know, a sit down and we can kind of just see how things are going for you. And I know that a lot of stuff has come up lately and then there's some things like, I think we should just probably work through. Don't worry. I still love you. This isn't going to be a bad conversation at all. I just want to get to a point where we're progressing in our relationship. That's awesome. And that also gives, um, you know, the partner a chance to wrap their head around it and almost prepare for a conversation and create mental space to have the conversation as well. Yeah. Instead of shooting a text saying like, we need to talk. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So, I mean, as long as, as long as the conversation when it's happening is people are in good head spaces. Um, I mean, if you've, if the plan is to have it 
when your partner's home from work and you're home from work, but either one of you've had like a really stressful day at work, maybe it's worth rebooking that conversation or schedule it. Yep. You're both in the right frame of mind. So it is a productive dialogue and make sure you like doing that pulse check again. Like, how are you feeling? Do you feel like you have the capacity to have this conversation? Do you have the capacity? Okay, great. Like let's do it. And do we want to put like a time limit on it too? Just so it's contained a bit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Good suggestions. Anyone needs to go for Ash- go to Ashley for some relationship therapy or just to navigate this and have some infrastructure or structure support around how to handle these things. Because from my experience, you know, when any, any partners are going through big transitions, such as, you know, having a kid, a job loss, a death of a parent, empty nesters, like there's just so much to navigate there because there's so much new and so much change and so much identity. And so really like leveraging support and therapists and resources to support you at those times, you know, being proactive and getting ahead of it versus like on the verge of, you know, a breakdown or divorce, like that's the way to do it. And it's, you know, trying to reduce the stigma around it too, that there are people who know how to support you in navigating these conversations if you've tried and it just becomes a bit too hard. Right. And what about with um, maintaining, I guess, intimacy? Cause I think these are like the conversations, if you can at least start that, but let's say the desire, the libido is there, but so much has changed. Mm. So what, what are some of the things that you help people are with navigating those? Like, do you know what I mean? Like all, all of a sudden it's like, you know, I used to love being on top and now I have this big belly and it's like, what do you do? But it, people, but partners still maybe want to engage in intimacy and have the energy for that. And That's I do want to reiterate, I've, I've have talked to couples where it's like, can't touch sex with a 10 foot pole. And then the others where it's like my arousal is like all jacked up. I've never experienced it this side before. So again, it really is so unique. Well, that's, to- that's your niche, right? That's like, that's your thing is desire discrepancy. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're pregnant, it's different. It's the, the logistics change, right? <laughs> yeah. The, like, how, how does this happen? If we're having like penis and vagina sex, how, how do we do this? Right. If we're like Sunday morning in the shower sexers, mm-hmm. um, I, I can't tell you that that's going to be able to continue while you're pregnant. Um, maybe in the first trimester, but also we have to think about nausea and vomiting. So, I mean, if you're in the shower and everything's good to go and you have to, you know, throw up in the shower. Fantastic. You have that already. Yeah. (laughs) But in terms of logistics, I think it's really important to also think about vulnerability and your relationship with play and playfulness in general, because those two are connected. Yeah. So if you're a missionary position person and that's all you're comfortable with and logistically that can't happen anymore because of how big your belly's getting, right? Then exploring the hesitation to change positions or communicate the hesitation with your partner to communicate, you know, this isn't working for me anymore. And the other thing too is that if you are someone who's used to having an orgasm every time that you've had sex, that might shift when you're pregnant. So it might not be that it's not pleasurable, but you might not end up having an orgasm and that's okay. But if your partner's not used to it and you're not used to it, you kind of need to explore that conversation around the pleasure's there, but the orgasm's not there. Right. And the fun is there and the intimacy and connection is there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that ties back to what you were originally saying, just about being patient and not catastrophizing everything immediately, like yeah. sitting with it, like a lot is changing, explore, be curious, keep the dialogue open, um, but try not to be afraid yeah. if there's been a drastic change because it could change again. And a, a barrier that comes up a lot too, is that women, um, vulva owners, pregnant people sometimes need to be on pelvic rest. Right. So scary things could start being correlated to having sex. So you have sex, now suddenly um, you've experienced some blood loss and your care provider has said, we need you on pelvic rest, which mm -hmm. means no sex. Um, for some people, they can still have orgasm. So they can still engage in oral sexual experiences, manual sexual experiences. They can masturbate which might help. But again, it's what, how does your, what is your partner? What are some kind of like stigmas and core beliefs that are coming up? If you have a partner that thinks that you should not be masturbating on your own, or that's, it's offensive to them that you masturbate on your own. This is going to have to be a conversation if, especially if your libido is quite high, if your desire is quite high. So exploring that a little bit more. So renegotiating boundaries, even within the context of the relationship. Yes. Wow. That's fantastic. So much to navigate. Um, and, and identifying the fact that you have a desire to be close to your partner and now you can't have sex. So how do you renegotiate how you're going to feel close to each other? Because there are a lot of people that feel the closest to their partners when they're having sex. Right. So how do you get creative? How do you meet each other's needs without having intercourse in a way that's going to jeopardize your pregnancy or your pelvis in any capacity? If the doctor or midwife or care provider yeah. has let you know that you need to be on pelvic rest, right? Because there, there could be complications and again, nuances based on everyone's physiological makeups and whatnot. But overall, sex is healthy to continue yeah. during pregnancy. Yeah. Very healthy. Unless, right? It's healthy and it could be encouraged even to help like alleviate, you know, with endorphins and all that stuff and yeah. keeping you connected. And even by trying to figure out how to navigate sex during the pregnancy will help you and set you up for success and how to navigate sex after baby or babies. Yeah. Come, yeah. Right. Cause you're starting that to manage the changes and manage the dialogue yeah. when you don't have to maybe handle a, a, a baby around it or babies yeah. at that, at that time. Right. And masturbation during pregnancy can be, again, a lot of people will use it during menstruation just to relieve pain. Yes. Masturbation during Headaches. Yeah. It's fantastic. And there's so many cool toys that are coming out these days that how can you not want to explore them? Right. Makes it easy. <laughs> yeah. It makes it so easy. And we have adult film directors, Erica Lust is one, um, who have created pregnancy positive adult film, erotic film. Mm -hmm. And even, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's just one film that she has and it's heterosex, but even watching something like that can give you some ideas around how do I navigate pleasure with a pregnant stomach, a pregnant belly. Body, yeah. You know, and that's huge. And you're touching on something too, where it's not, um, you know, pregnancy isn't overly sexualized in the media and society, right? So it's like, how do you do this? And it's trying to figure it out behind closed doors. So having the conversations with people like you or checking out Erica's last videos, because I know I'll put in the show notes, but hooking up with your website, because I think that you give people a discount code to go see those, mm -hmm. her videos yeah. too, right? So that would be good. And again, these are all things that, you know, we really promote 
and when people are looking for resources as well, because I think you know, erotic film and porn can be healthy, but you want to make sure that um, you're paying for your porn as well. And it is. Yeah, pay for your porn. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Preach, sister. They work hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, with um a couple minutes left, like I did want to ask one last question before we wrap this up. But I, any thoughts on orgasmic birth? Like I do not know a lot about it. Yeah. Um, you love it. You love it. So can you? I, I guess I I just don't understand it enough. I think I've read maybe one book, and people ask me about it a lot because like you know I would like to know more about it, but it's not my niche. Yeah. Like what is that, and how can people explore that a little bit more for themselves? Yeah. So there's a fantastic documentary called um, Orgasmic Birth. Oh, there is. Okay. So a, a documentary called Orgasmic yeah. Birth. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I think actually when I downloaded it, it must have been, um, it must have been just like a, a, a way for the internet to avoid getting, getting flagged on the internet. But I think that when I downloaded it, it was called flagged. Organic Birth or something like that. Oh, okay. They changed the name to it, um, but it was Orgasmic Birth. And it, it the premise of this is that there are moments, mostly in unmedicated birth, where you can move into a euphoric state of mind wow. that you literally feel high. Like um, ecstasy, like totally like an alignment, so total. Okay. And your body is designed to go through this. And the reason why it doesn't necessarily happen in medicated birth is because, you know, there are things there that are maybe blocking or preventing that from happening. And that's not to say that people that have medicated births aren't able to incorporate practices of the orgasmic birth method, but we often see almost like a dissociation when women and birthing people are birthing, you know, at home maybe, or in a very sacred birth space. Mm -hmm. And they have this moment of complete, like they can't see you, they can't hear you. They're completely in themselves, but out of themselves. Wow. And the euphoria is just, it's just there and it's just taking over. And usually it's indescribable after the fact. But these are the moments that your body is doing what it needs to do to get the baby out. In a healthy, kind of natural, well, I guess, I mean, you got to do what you got to do for the safety of the birthing person as well as the child. But yeah. in terms of you're trying to do more of a natural birth and then incorporate some practices to help with pain management and really kind of yeah. tap into this alignment of how you can channel this energy, I guess it is, or what, what are some practices though that help you to have an orgasmic birth? Like, is it breathing? Yeah. Is it, what, what is it? So the reason why that for the euphoric, the euphoria is for pain relief. Okay. Knows that, okay, this is getting painful. Let's kick up, kick it up a notch essentially. Cause pain um, can equal pleasure for some, yes. right? Very much so. And I mean, you are focusing on moving this baby through your vaginal canal which means that it's pushing up against the entire clit clitoral anatomy. Mm. So for, um, interestingly enough, induction, there's an induction method that involves nipple stimulation or pumping. Yeah. So if women and birthing people are wanting to bring on labor naturally, so to speak, without the use of um, pharmaceuticals, then 
pumping or having you or your partner stimulate your nipples can mm -hmm. kind of get things going. This is also useful during labor as pain management. Wow. Pain being an interesting word to use. I think sometimes the word pain has a lot of associations with it. So some birth workers try to avoid the word pain in general. Comfort measures is used. Versus pain management is a comfort measures. Yeah. Okay. And within this documentary, you're, you will be able to see the euphoric moments for some of the people that are giving birth. But clitoral stimulation is also an important tool to use. And like you might not be able to reach at that Climax. point. Climax. Like from a sexual perspective, right? No, but some people do. Yeah. And that contraction of the uterus during a climax is going to help push the baby out. Right. And even um, like release some of the tension too that's being built up as well. You know, I learned that doing the, my master's sexology being like, you know, some people could bring in vibrators and sometimes midwives or care providers might put on warm cloths on the clitoris. And I went in and gave a presentation once to like a room of pregnant people and they were like, I'm never fucking doing that. Like there is no way I'm masturbating while I'm trying to deliver. I, was, I understand that from like comparing it to when you're, you know, masturbating in your, in your self-pleasuring in your room on your own for a pleasurable experience, but sometimes for just the pain or comfort measure, it could be a comfort measure, right? And that's what's being used as a strategy and not necessarily to go and get off in the middle of pregnancy. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, and that's kind of why in private settings, like delivery rooms where it's just your partner and yourself, maybe using something like a vibrator might be useful. There are so many vibrators that are water resistant that if you're giving birth in a birthing pool or in a shower, you're laboring in a shower, fantastic. Right. Or maybe you're that comfortable with your partner that this is an amazing opportunity for the two of you to feel connected right before the baby comes into the yeah. world. Wow. Orgasmic birth. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm like dying to hear offline. Obviously we're going to keep the conversations going because Ashley is about to give d deliver twins. So she is yeah. pregnant with twins and um, she should be ready to go in about eight weeks, right? Hopefully they, hopefully they stay in there that yeah. long and keep baking in there. And they keep baking in there. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy for you and congratulations again. And thank you again for being willing to share your wisdom and you are a wealth of information. And I'm going to include all of your contact information as well. So if anyone has any further questions or I know you put together workshops, um, provide psych web for people and you are a great resource and you keep expanding your skill set to help with that continuity of care. So even people, you know, after going through birth or parenting and whatnot, want to start talking about like reigniting passion and desire. Like you, they don't need to necessarily be transferred to another therapist. Like you really do try to incorporate as much education and learning to really serve your clients. So um, again, thank you. I think the world of you and I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you.